Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they treasure and would like to preserve in a time capsule. Well, actually, four things they treasure and one thing they loathe and would like to be rid of by banishing it to a hole in the ground. My guest in this episode is... Well, let me tell you what she's been in since she burst onto our television screens by winning Opportunity Knocks talent show in 1970 aged just six, and see if you can work it out. She was in the film Bugsy Malone. She acted in Just William, The Morkman Wise Show, The Catherine Tate Show, Doctor Who, as a companion to Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy, and she was in 351 episodes of EastEnders. She's competed in Strictly Come Dancing, Pointless Celebrities, and Dancing on Ice quite a number of times. She's performed at three royal variety shows and the Queen Mother's 90th Birthday Gala, and she's done all this whilst appearing on stage in Gypsy in London and on Broadway, the original cast of Cats, The Pirates of Penzance, Me and My Girl, Chicago, 42nd Street, Oklahoma, Sweet Charity, Guys and Dolls, Spamalot, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, 9 to 5, and 16 pantomimes. And as the man who found a lettuce sticking out of his ear said, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, my amazing guest is the brilliant Bonnie Langford. And as Tommy Trendy used to say, you lucky people. Now, anybody under the age of 50 who's still with me, congratulations. You're in for a treat. So, Bonnie, how lovely to have you as my guest on my time capsule. I'm delighted, I have to say. I haven't seen you for ages and you're looking gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Well, I don't know how because actually if you you want to know this... 
you can see me from the neck up, but I've actually got my jogging bottoms on at the bottom with my legs up and my slippers <laughs> on. I mean, we've all turned into very strange creatures, haven't mm-hmm. we? Of, of, we're all kind of ready from the neck up, really, and that's about it, really. <laughs> so I don't think I've worn shoes for ages, actually. I wear my dog walking boots and slippers. <laughs> I don't think I can wear you're, shoes you're anymore. You're not going to cope with high heels again. Tell me about it. The other day, I did actually go out. I went and recorded a song in a cafe sounds mm. ridiculous it sounds awful it's <laughs> like my whole life has come to tr- drinking coffee and having to sing like some sad person who's desperate um but no i said i would go and do this routine and i said the only way we can do this is we can completely camp it up and sort of taking the mickey out of myself which i'm happy to do mm. but i did have to wear high shoes and on top of that it was absolutely freezing and my feet were so cold in between takes i was putting big fluffy socks on that i fortunately had taken (laughs) with me and then having to put my shoes in front of the heater to heat the shoes up but i really it was not only the cold i really couldn't walk in high heels anymore i have lost the ability which is something i mean i could even run in high heels at one point in my life i saw you do roxy so i know what you can do in high heels exactly you know and doctor who i used to have to run in high heels because i didn't fit in a two shot otherwise so you know i was very very adept at it and now (laughs) well thank goodness we can go back in time and we Mm. can travel through our lives and pick out things that we treasure, that we want to put into a time capsule. That's what we're going to do in this little podcast game. It's quite daunting. Is it? I'm quite daunted by it. Yes, because you remember things, I don't know, you then think, oh, that sounds really daft, or no, I won't do that. Oh, what if I did that? But I suppose there is no real right or wrong. No. Because you, I think nowadays as well, we're so judged. There's always somebody who will turn around and go, hey, maybe you that. You know, and you think, oh, I don't, I don't really mean it that way or something's personal to you and maybe it sounds a bit soppy and then you can get quite maudlin can't you with stuff you sort of think Mm -hmm. and because there's such a wonderful limitless opportunity here it then actually (laughs) stops you focusing doesn't it it's not really fair is it yeah when i say it can be anything anything any size any shape ephemeral real something you've still got something you've lost it's not fair is it you know, and I've been in the business now 50 years, most of my life, I'll have you say. And there's a lot to remember. And I knew this when I asked you, actually. And mm-hmm. I knew when I proposed this idea to you that you would struggle with it because I thought, how on earth is she going to choose from all those things? You were six, weren't you, when you started? Yeah. Six years old. I was six years old when I first went on TV. Mm. And uh, it was in a talent show called Opportunity Knocks. And I do remember it vividly. It was my whole life. I mean, one of the things that I will put in my time capsule is, well, it's either one or two things. I can't work it out. I've got a photograph of my family on the day of my father's funeral. And it's a very strange photograph because we're all gathered around this table, sitting on chairs, kids on people's laps, things like that. It was some time ago, 2004. But there's a, weirdly, and this was not planned at all, there is a chair at the top of this photograph, at the sort of peak of this photograph, that is empty. Oh, my word. And it's almost like my dad was there in it, but not. And I find that quite, it's very haunting because, you know, he was the head of the table, really, of all these girls. There's mainly 
at that point, he had one grandson and the rest were all girls. His daughters, you know, three daughters, a very female, feminine uh, environment, quite mad. And he was the backbone of us. And it was interesting that this photograph, as I say, it was not necessarily posed. It was not worked out that way. It was just, oh, gather around, gather around. Let's all have the photo. Look at the camera, go for it. And then it was only afterwards when we all got this photo and went, oh, my goodness, look, this chair is empty. Do you think everybody instinctively avoided the chair because that's what they would have always done? Probably. I, I really, I don't know. I also found a letter that he had written to me. This is another thing that I sort of, maybe I'll tuck it in the back of the photo frame. Yeah, sure. Um, He used to write letters. So when I was nine years old, I went to America for the first time. And uh, I went with my mother because I went to do a show that I had been in in London called Gypsy. Mm -hmm. So as I say, I started on TV when I was six on this programme, Opportunity Knocks. Nowadays, people go on television and they say, it's going to change my life. And it probably does to a degree. And in a way, it probably did change my life. But what I'm grateful for is the fact that when I went on TV, it was just one little show down the road from where we lived. I was doing my mother's dancing school show. And the following week, I couldn't go back to go on the TV show again because I was already doing my mother's dancing school show. (laughs) And that was important in our world and more important. And it was of the days when people used to sign on the back of a postcard to send in your votes. You know, it was all a lot slower, a lot calmer. Somewhere there must be some kind of cine film of my father took a cine film of the television. It was that old. Of course, wow. Station to say, and that was it. It was not meant to be the start of anything, but you know, looking back, it was. Well, three years later, you've done the West End, and you're off to Broadway. Exactly, which is a bit nuts, isn't it? Extraordinary. Even though my home life was pretty much exactly the same. However, going to America was the one time when my home life changed obviously Mm -hmm. because going there big adventure for me my mother was terrified she came as my chaperone and my father used to write letters to me he he couldn't come out very often because you know they were ordinary middle class people you don't have money to go you know we'd only been to Bognor on holiday (laughs) and been abroad you didn't do that you didn't get on a plane it was a big deal and it was expensive and my father ran a business and you know he couldn't leave it he came out about four times while we were there Hmm. But as I say, in between, he would write these letters and he was one of these people who his writing was often quite indecipherable, but he would write letters in, for example, in a circle. (laughs) And I'd have to follow all the writing in a circle and read. And he was one of those people that was very calm, very sort of staid. Everything was, you know, he was definitely the anchor. And as I say, the backbone of of my family, of Hmm. what could be chaos and madness and drama. And I think I took a lot from him because I don't like chaos and madness and drama. I think keep that on the stage when it's needed. Don't have it backstage. It's a waste of energy. Mm. And if you can avoid it at all costs, I will. And as I say, I found a letter that he had written to me, not at that time, but on another occasion when I'd been in America on my own, fun enough. And it was just one of those, you know, Hello, Poppy, how are you? I'm just sitting in the summer house, writing this letter, catching a moment to say to you, nothing much to say. And I think why I sort of want to put it in a time capsule is because that picture and that letter shows the calmness that I actually had in my life and that I always crave. I like things to be calm. Although throughout my whole career, it's always been, oh, you're so showbiz. You're so crazy. And I love fun. 
but I'm actually quite dull. <laughs> and also having that letter, I treasure it because it shows that ordinariness mm. of my life. So you would call it dull. I would call it professional. Yes. Well, there is that to it, but as well. But you know what I mean? I think that people think that everything has, oh, you're so showbiz and you must get up singing and dancing. Absolutely not. And I think that gives you peace and longevity. And I always crave that. I crave that peace and that normality. And, and you know, we're all, okay, we're actors. We're playing ordinary people. And you've got to keep in touch with that. You know, like kids who go on the telly and they go on these talent shows and they say, oh, I, I want to change my life and I want to buy a house for my mum. And, and this is my last chance. Oh. And they're 17. And you go, yeah. no. I did a TV show once and I remember being backstage waiting to go on and these two comics had, had um, been rehearsing and they said it was their last chance. They felt this was their last moment. Mm. And I felt so worried for these people because I thought how desperate, and of course you can smell desperate a long way off. And as I say, I was standing backstage, they went on stage and they were charming. They were getting nice, polite laughter. Mm. And as I was backstage, I was beside, they turned one of the dressing rooms into the control room where the producer stood and the producer stood there and went, get them off. No. Get them off. That's it. They're done. Get them off. Um, and it just, I've never forgotten that moment of, oh, that could be any one of us. Could be any one of us. And yet maybe that centred nature of your life, which you take from your father, that thing of, of sort of going, okay, life's circular, mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. come round again. Mm -hmm. You've had that again and again and again, where somebody who wasn't so centred mm -hmm. might have gone, oh, no, that's it, it's over. Mm -hmm. I don't mean in the sense of you doing it wrong. I mean in the sense of being in something enormous and then it stops, and you think, will something else come along? But it has for you again and again and yeah, again. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Because you're good at what you do, that's why. Yeah, but you are only as good as your last job, it seems. You know, that you can easily be in something. You don't know whether it's going to be any good. I mean, look, I was in Cats at 16, original cast. How lovely. I'd come out of college, and I thought, well, I'll just see how it goes. I'll see what happens. Got into a play at Windsor that was all very nice and then I started doing the countless auditions for cats <laughs> which there were <laughs> only five uh, it seemed like countless but it was only five but you know it was just another audition and another <laughs> audition and another what else can I show them oh don't I remember going for an audition and I sang day by day which is what I'd just been singing at Worcester Rep now, the thing about it in the show, in Godspell, it's one of those songs where you start and then various people come in with extra vocal lines and harmonies and, and <laughs> syncopated rhythms. But you can, well, I sang the whole thing, but not with any of the extra lines. So I just sang like 12 verses of Day by Day. And at the end of it, Julie Lynn turns to me and she went, Oh, that's lovely, darling. I didn't realise there were so many versions of it and so, so much repetition. I went, oh, right, yeah. Anyway, then at the end of it as well, Trevor made us do um, Shakespeare pieces for cats, which is quite fun. Wow. Now, this may be completely untrue, but I once worked with somebody who was one of the dancers in the original company, but he said that there was a period when you were rehearsing it and getting it ready for the West End when the money ran so short mm -hmm. that they asked members of the cast if they would forego their wages in lieu of percentage. I don't remember them foregoing their wages. It was, would you like to invest? The units are £250 each. 
And did you? I wish I had. Oh, oh no, how I wish I had. <laughs> but at that point, we all thought, well, we haven't got 250 quid to waste. No. We knew it would be a Marmite show. It would be either a huge success or a massive flop. Nothing mm. in between. Nothing in between. And that was even if we ever got to the first night. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was 16. Yes. And it was sort of my in-between drama school thing. And if it didn't work out, you know, for me, it was great. I could do the show at night, go in and do classes at Pineapple or wherever during the day. It was part of my sort of training. I was very low-key about it all. Although, I will tell you in the middle of it, there was um, – <laughs> you've see, you got, you got stuff out of me already. There was a <laughs> moment when we none of us thought it would get on. I mean, people were going to hospital. They were, you know, injuries. Judy Dench was still in hospital with her Achilles, which she snapped in the first week of rehearsals, which then went septic and was not a good sign at all. Um, I mean, the whole thing was starting to fall apart, literally. Um, It was 10 days before we went into the theatre. We didn't have any second act at all. (laughs) It hadn't been set, none of it. So no midnight. No midnight. Oh, no. I mean, that no, that didn't appear until just before the first preview. And then the lyrics would change every single night. And you know how you you remember stories and you wonder if you've made them up? Mm. And fortunately, there is a story that I tell about Elaine Page coming in, taking over from Judi Dench, and that throughout, you know, she learned the song immediately and then the lyrics kept changing. People were writing different lyrics. And then Trevor wrote a lyric that was an amalgamation of lots of different uh, TSO lines from from different things, and Mm. that became the lyric. But she told the story, and I remembered it, that she had written the words, some keywords on the back of her hand, but it was only halfway through the song that she looked down to check, and it was only then that she realised she'd got gloves on. (laughs) (laughs) And the song is called Memory. Um, (laughs) And then she told that story the, the other day, and I was like, yes, I do remember it right. I do remember it. Right, thank goodness. I'd love to have seen her sing memory. (laughs) I know. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It would have been hilarious. What was I going to tell you? I was going to oh that was it. In the middle of rehearsals. It was quite desperate. We were rehearsing at Her Majesty's Theatre. It was dark at the time. The safety curtain was in. Very creepy. Jilly Lynn would make us do the Jellicle Ball every day. So people were just getting injured and carted off to hospital. And I thought, this show's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And I got asked if I would audition to play Liesel in The Sound of Music, which was due to be put on at the Apollo Victoria with Petula Clark. Mm. I thought, well, I'll go along. <laughs> Quietly. <laughs> yeah. I think I said I had a very bad nosebleed and had to come in late. So I <laughs> went in late to rehearsals feeling terrible. I thought, well, that's okay. I've done it, and I've got to, you know, that's that's maybe I should just stay with this show if it's not going to be pulled off. But then I got in trouble in a way in my head because they offered me the job. <laughs> they said they phoned me up and said, "Okay, we really want you to be Lisa with Petula, but we actually need you next weekend to fly to Austria to meet the real Maria von Trapp and be announced as one of the as Lisa." Wow. <laughs> and I went, um. 
really sorry, I can't do it. I can't do uh, it. <laughs> so I chose cats. Oh, no. And they said to you, honestly, Bonnie, how old are you? And you said, well, I'm 16, going on 17. You see, you put it absolutely right. You've got the tagline. Fair enough. You were only a child. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to put, I love that photograph. Papa and all his girls. Lovely. We'll slip the letter into the back. Yes. That's our first item. We've digressed a lot. I've constantly been trying to sort of write my book, and I'm always writing bits and bobs. Are you writing an autobiography? I'm always writing something. I'm always trying to sort of think about it. Brilliant. What I decided to do in in a way was just what I call brain dump and put Mm. everything I could think of down. The problem is you go back to the beginning and then you only get to about age eight. Yes, (laughs) and that's when I first started acting, the end. Exactly, (laughs) the end, 12 (laughs) volumes later. Um, Yeah, I'll go on to my next thing that I want to put in the time capsule because... I moved over it quite quickly, but at eight years old, I went to America with a show called Gypsy. Now, um, I was asked the other day, give us your favourite this, your favourite that. I find them very difficult in many respects. But one thing that I'll always say with a musical theatre, the overture for Gypsy, I think, has to be one of the best ever. And I had the privilege of standing behind the curtain every single night waiting for my entrance. Well, as the curtain would go up, first scene of Gypsy. Uh, particularly on Broadway at the Winter Garden Theatre when I was nine years old, every night I would hear this electric, I mean, this music was, I've got a recording of it that somebody took from the back of the sound desk. Really? We didn't have mics, though. It was acoustic. And this orchestra sound like they're on speed. It's that (sighs) fast, but so exciting. And if that doesn't touch you, don't do the business. Don't be in it. Don't do it. Because you'll need moments like that to think, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Because it can be so hard. And because you've got this part of you that has all this, it's not even attention. It's kind of, it's kind of connection, this feeling of something happening. At that one particular moment that will never, ever be the same again, that is so it just touches something within you and it's not even an ego I don't find it an ego trip at all if it's an ego trip you shouldn't do it but if there's just something that when you've got that in you and it touches you you do kind of seek it again you keep wanting it's like a drug it's a fix you want you Mm. do want and a lot of people go oh yes you just want people to love you no 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 no. it's not it's not that it's not that actually for me anyway no taking the curtain call is quite often just a process absolutely that doesn't mean anything. It's not saying thank you, thank you. For me, a curtain call is about going, look what we felt, look what we've mm. all felt together. It's a hug. And, um, you know, I've been so fortunate because I, w- I went into this show when I was eight years old, which was weird in itself to be in because, I, you know, I just auditioned for this and then it happened. Um, I had to be this character called Baby June, who is mm. was a real-life character, a lady called June Havoc. And she had an act on Broadway in the vaudeville circuit the show gypsy is about her mother and herself and her sister who then became gypsy rose lee hence it's called gypsy the music is by julie stein uh, lyrics by stephen sondheim the book was by arthur lawrence he was directing our production and angela lansbury played my mama wow and so to have that opportunity to work in that environment with the people who created the show and with someone as glorious as Angela Lansbury when you're eight years old and you're a sponge and actually you're quite quiet and calm it was a gift I will Mm -hmm. always hold dear to my heart 
as I say, my audition, they asked if they could twirl, but if I could twirl batons. I couldn't. My father made me this contraption of a stick on a kind of a on a spinny wheel thing on it like a screw and I just spun it and it went round like a top and I he made it for me to look like I could job I I then had to learn how to draw the dons once I got the job. Anyway I was in this show in London. I was only in it for six weeks because the uh, regulations for children working in England limited you to 40 days. On my last day of that show the producers asked if I would go to America with the show to my parents they thought they were just being nice didn't think anything of it until later on the producers phoned them about a month later and said have you discussed this and thought it through and they went no because we thought you were just being nice we didn't think you meant it <laughs> cut a very long story short um i was made a ward of court and everything and i went to america to do a year's tour with angela lansbury with the team and a, a season on broadway and you know that had such a profound effect on me in so many different ways. And at that point, America and England were, were not the same at all. You know, we, we didn't get American cartoons and things like that over here. It was a, it was a different world. You know, we were two countries separated by a common language. We really were. Mm. And um, going there at the age of nine and rehearsing with the seven other kids that were in the show and going to a cafe at lunchtime and they had a Coke float. I mean, <laughs> it, it, disgusting. You know, there's a Coca-Cola with an ice cream squad in it. But for me, <laughs> you know, Mrs. Boring from Twickenham, it was totally mind-blowing and wonderful. But my feet were always very much on the ground. And I realised it was very hard for my mother as well because she was terrified of everything. <laughs> terrified. <laughs> and quite rightly so, you know, New York in the mid-70s was not really the place to be. You literally, you know, you didn't go to 8th Avenue then because it, you'd right. see, and we did see somebody being held up at gunpoint and it was, whoo, uh, quick, get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, she'd have to sit backstage every night and listen to that overture. As I say, she was my chaperone and she was my dresser. She never saw me do the show. No. Because I had this incredibly quick change in the middle of what was the part of the show, which is sort of Baby June's act. And so she was too terrified, she's neurotic, my mother. She was too neurotic to let somebody else do that change because it might not go right. So she never saw me do the show. Never went out front. Never went out front. Oh, bless her. But one of the things I have, and one of the things that I probably would put in my time capsule, is a letter that I have from June Havoc, who I was playing. Good Lord. So it was renowned that she didn't come, she didn't like Gypsy, the show. Because it was a musical festival. She said it wasn't truthful. Mm. It also, you know, she she had the most incredible life. Oh, my goodness. And I think that's also why I've always been discredited with being this showbiz kid. Because I played a showbiz kid. Mm. Um, you know, Baby June was this, you know, she was a, a huge act. She was earning $1,500 a week in the 1920s as a kid in the vaudeville circuit. And she told me that... You know, she felt that they had never kind of credited the importance of that and the success of that. And that was why Mama Rose was when June eloped. She was always seeking that success again, because mm. why wouldn't you? And she was very talented. She became a hugely successful actress and we became friends, which I also cherish. But anyway, her life was quite mad as a child. But it wasn't it wasn't really her life story in Gypsy. And it didn't paint her particularly well because she did run off and that was the end of it. And apparently she didn't like the fact that she didn't come out of it very well. And at the <laughs> end, it then focused on Gypsy and it didn't focus on her and all the stuff that she went yeah. through. 
But what she wrote to me, and it meant so much to me because they got her to come and see the show because she was friends with Angela as well. And she said she never really liked the show because they didn't. she didn't feel that she was represented in it. However, on in our production, she did. And she wrote me this note after. We knew she'd been to see the show and she didn't come around and say hello afterwards. She left. But she sent me this letter and it says, Dear Bonnie Langford, December 29th, 1974. Just a tiny note to tell you how enchanted I was with your many faceted performance. You bring a new dimension to the play, which I found quite unexpected. And I most sincerely hope you continue to achieve and grow in your career and life. And then she gave me this little memento, which was a like a badge with a photograph of her on it as Baby June. And she said, please accept this little memento. I used to give them away to the audience at kiddie receptions when I was about six or seven years old. And I hope you might be amused to have one. All warmest best wishes, June Havoc. What a beautiful thing to get. It's, it was a beautiful thing to get because she was basically saying that she felt represented. And as I say, I met her some years later, they did my This Is Your Life, and they brought her over as the last guest. She came over to London for a few days, and on those shows, they would always give the main big guest a car at their disposal and anything they wanted to do for about three or four days during their stay. Uh, she came to see me. I was doing Peter Pan at the time, Peter Pan the Musical with Joss Ackland at the Aldwych Theatre. Mm. and she came to see the show and we were chatting about all sorts of things and it was just lovely and I said so where do you think you're going tomorrow and she went oh I'm going to Wapping and I went pardon <laughs> what Wapping East London Wapping she went, yes I'm going to Wapping and I said can I ask why what, have you got family there or something she went oh no no there's a Doctor Who shop there and I went what Doctor Who the, the British sci-fi you know do you mean Doctor Doctor and she went, yes, I'm a huge fan and I want to go and get some memorabilia. What was more peculiar was that I knew that I was about to take over as the next assistant in Doctor Who. <laughs> Could you tell ah, her? Yeah, I told her. I oh, tell anyone. How brilliant. I mean, why would you bring Gypsy, June Havoc and Doctor Who together? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Do you know my children performed in... Peter Pan the Musical, not in London, but in Tunbridge Wells when it was done here, when they were children. It's the only thing they've ever done on stage with Colin Baker. Oh, you see, it is six degrees of separation. <laughs> I, I, at for Kevin Bacon, as they say. It, it, it literally, life does weird things, doesn't it? We all have connections. Yeah. How bizarre. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, how lovely. Oh, but that letter, that's just... That's a gorgeous thing. Oh, you must be so proud of it. Well, I'm not one to put things up about myself anywhere, but that one I did. Mm, that one I did. I don't blame you. And we shall preserve that in the time capsule. It's a lovely thing. Good. OK, so let's move on to number three. OK, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Bonnie in a second. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Bonnie Langford would like to put in her time capsule. I think I sort of touched on it a bit before. Laughter. I'd like the sound of laughter. I think that true laughter of an audience or people or whatever is we can all applaud we can all shout we can all go Woo, yeah whatever it doesn't if there is genuine roars of laughter i find that just so special it's over everything because it has to be real it has to come from somewhere real and it's such a release we don't have enough of it no and particularly that shared laughter that thing like you say being in an audience and all laughing together it's to me as well that's empathy that shows empathy for you know because we're feeling something and when someone else is laughing as well it validates it it's almost mm. as if oh my goodness you find that funny too oh. and and when you're told that you can't laugh that's always the funniest thing i remember going <laughs> to see years ago actually with someone who was in gypsy in america came over to visit it was when Noises Off was on at the Savoy, and I went to see that with him. Didn't get it at all. No. Didn't get it at all. And I was howling. And the fact that he <laughs> didn't get it made me absolutely cry <laughs> with the large I'm like, how can you not find this funny? Anybody who's ever tried to do comedy in any circumstances will have done it and have it fall completely flat. And that... <laughs> That can be as funny as anything else, I find. <laughs> I know, but maybe <laughs> afterwards, but not at the time. When the no. tumbleweed's going and you're going, start the car. You know, <laughs> I, I always, if I'm doing a number in anything, I'll always go, what's the playoff? Because I don't want to go off to the sound of my own footsteps, you know. But laughter, and when the audience roar with laughter, and that's not the same as, a, as, a, as cheering. And, it, you know, Yes, that has obviously something wonderful about it when mm. you hear people appreciating and, and they've been moved. But even that you can actually, you can replicate if you're not totally feeling it or you get swept along with it. Mm-hmm. But you can't make somebody laugh at something if they don't find it funny. And it can be so intangible. So to get it and then to repeat it night after night and because you know it's going to be, it's keeping it fresh. Isn't there that old story? Isn't it Gertie Lawrence who used to say to Noel Coward, um, darling, I don't know why I'm not getting the laugh on, on my line, on my line about the tea. Why am I not getting the laugh about the line? And he said, because, my dear, you should just ask for a cup of tea. Don't ask for the laugh. <laughs> and that's what it is. That's why it's so difficult to do. So laughter for me. Laughter is a lovely thing to put in. It'll echo around the whole time capsule, all the time. All right, yeah. all right that's enough now. Come on. Okay, enough but... now. Stop laughing at me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Bonnie. So uh, laughter goes into the time capsule. So what's the next thing you want to put in there? One of the things that, you know, I've 
said I would write a book, but always my, and, and if anyone ever says to me, oh, you know, what was it like in so-and-so and so-and-so, I'll always say, well, I don't know as an audience. I only know from my side of the footlights. And that's what I find special and precious. And one of the things that really sort of touched me um, quite recently, was, well, 2018, I think it was, I'd been in EastEnders for a while. I'd done about three years in, in Enders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and come away, I'd finished with this really dark story about uh, knife crime, which was brilliantly done and written and approached and very, you know, wonderful but difficult to do. It sounds awful, doesn't it? That this is the thing when you're in a soap, people turn around and go, "Oh, have you got a story?" "Oh, yes, I've got a knife crime." "Oh, great!" "Oh, I mean, not great, but great, great." "I mean, yeah, it's uh, yes." "Oh, yeah, I'm going to kill someone." "Great, okay, oh, wonderful." You know, and it's ridiculous the conversations you have if you were to take them out of context. But what it gives you is the opportunity to um, to really invest deeply and know that you can perhaps do something that you can really commit to and that you can feel might touch people and with that story it really did deeply and I felt very privileged to be this person I also felt very guilty if I was walking on the street afterwards and smiling because people would come up to me and go I'm so sorry about your son and I'd go, um, <laughs> oh, it's not it's not real and lucky for me it wasn't but for those people mm. it was which made me feel even more sort of um gracious and, and grateful that it made a difference mm. um so it was it was, in, it was a very dark place to have come from and then i went straight into literally i finished on the saturday oh well, i had a night shoot on the friday night and started second street on the monday wow. could not have been more polar opposite if you tried <laughs> 59 people tap dancing on a stage i mean just <laughs> unabashed tap dancing glory showbiz everything but actually mm. the book of 42nd street is great because it is coming from um, the depression it's people needing the job needing to live and tap dancing for their lives. I mean, actually, it really is. And it's, in some respects, very reflective of where we are now. And I was playing Dorothy Brock, the diva, who basically, it's her, it's her last chance to get a show again. She's trying to keep her career going to be this big star. She's had to sweeten up this sugar daddy to put money in it in order for her to be in this show and to put this show on. And she's hiding the fact that she's actually in love with somebody else. And all she really wants is a beautiful life. Bon, you'll think I'm stalking you, but I also saw you do that. You were fantastic. Oh, I enjoyed it. And funnily enough, I played the young ingenue 25 years before that on a tour. (laughs) So apparently I'm the only person who's done both. And I bet you never thought that that musical, that brilliant musical, because I remember when it first came round and seeing it then and thinking, my God, they'll never do anything like this again. This is astonishing. Yes. But at Drury Lane, it was extraordinary. I think what was really clever, funnily enough, I went to see the opening night on this more recent production Mm. just because well I've been invited I managed to get the night off work and I was like oh wonderful and I sat there listening to all this uh, dialogue and some of it is played as if to go you know yes we're saying these lines but it's it's also very truthful and as I say unfiltered show business Um, and also it's all about you know people at the beginning of their careers and the end of their careers and in between and and the stuff you go through to survive in life in whatever you're doing and the choreographer who well the original choreographer was Gower Champion and 42nd Street the show had been shrouded in in drama on the very first performance in New York when it first went on Gower Champion passed away that day and they had to come David Merrick the producer walked on the stage and went I have to tell you that our wonderful 
director and choreographer has died and there was some drama, drama, drama on that night. Anyway, so yeah. the, the show went on in London again, as, as, as you say. Um, I went to the opening night and the person who had recreated the choreography was a friend of mine, Randy Skinner, wonderful, wonderful American tap dancer, director. And he said something really wise, actually. I said, what you've done is amazing because you've taken the show, you've taken all those iconic moments and you've actually added to it. Mm. You've done more things that weren't there when it was so wonderful. And he said that he learned a very interesting lesson. The first show he ever saw when he was a young man on Broadway was Maine with Angela Lansbury. <laughs> it made him go into the business. He loved it, loved it, loved it. 86, they did a revival of it and they did it exactly as it had been done before. And he'd gone back and seen it and he was so disappointed because he had grown, theatre had grown, the world had grown, We all, our expectations were bigger. So he said he would only do this production of 42nd Street if he could put in the iconic moments and then add to them because it gave people more than they were expecting because we've all become more greedy. It really did though, didn't it? Didn't it, just... I mean, when they came up the steps and stuff, oh my God. Yeah. You could hear people in the audience say, where did all those people come from? Yes. And it was also this beating of the feet going through your heartbeat, that bam, 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 bam. And the rhythm, it just gets you. I mean, it is that thing of the certain beat. And everything in that show, there wasn't a single thing on click track. Everything was live. Every single tap beat was real. And that was made certain by Mark Bramble, who directed it and who co-wrote it originally. And he was the only person left. And sadly, he went two years ago, um, mm. just after we had filmed it, which is wonderful. We managed to film it, and actually it's coming out on DVD. I found out through Twitter the other day. I was like, oh, thanks for telling us. Oh, brilliant. Um, but at least it's there for prosperity. And thank goodness it is, because when are we going to get 59 people on a stage again? It's going to be a long time. Mm. Um, but as I say, they asked me if I would then go in as Dorothy Brock, having played Peggy Sawyer 25 years before, blah, blah, blah. And I, of course, it's, oh, I was just in heaven. I just was so thrilled to do it and so honoured. So I made my entrance as Dorothy Brock in exactly the same place I made my entrance when I first appeared on Drury Lane stage when I was seven in a musical production of Gone with the Wind playing Bonnie Butler. So it was interesting. And then, you know, just to think, God, was that that long ago? And then on my dress rehearsal of the show, when I was playing Dorothy Brock, there's a bit where you have to stand there all on your own and sing uh, the verse of 42nd Street, the theme, the, the title mm. song. And I stood there and I lost it. I lost oh, yeah. it completely. Because my life, you know when you see those TV shows where they kind of flash back and forward and then it goes and you're on to the next, it happened to me. My life went back and forth and back and forth and I thought good lord and I kind of did a bit of a time. I'm still here good times and fun times I've seen them all of them my dear I'm still here but I felt so privileged to have seen it from this side of the footlights all the stuff all those auditoriums so my view would be in that time capsule that moment of standing there and thinking you're still doing it, kiddo, and you still like it. It is the best view, isn't it? We are astonishingly privileged to have had that view. Nobody else thinks of theatres the way that the performers think of them. And when I first did 42nd Street, when I was playing Peggy Sawyer, I was in a very sad place in my head. I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. I felt I was in a big transition. I, I was still being reminded of being a child performer. I had such a glorious childhood. And all anybody wanted me to do was to say, oh, I don't want to do that again. I hated my childhood. You know, they, they, I was supposed to have a career, you know, 
rehab meltdown, whatever. And I wasn't happy. I certainly wasn't happy. But I wasn't wanting to disown my life. But I wasn't happy. And I would go out there and all those lines which were, you know, you're going out there and you're going to become a star. And all those little Peggy Sawyer, all those people out there are going to look at you and think they could be Peggy Sawyer one day. And all, you know, all those iconic lines of complete doom and gloom and putting all this weight <laughs> on this poor kid's shoulders and I remember when I first did it I used to think oh, don't do it don't do it it doesn't make you happy because it wasn't making me happy and that made me more unhappy because I knew that it was what I liked to do and blah 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 so to then be playing Dorothy those, all those years later and to have gone through that stuff and gone through the highs and lows of your career and life the highs and lows of of everything and to think, well, I'm doing it and I like it again. And I'm lucky to be here and I I feel privileged to share the experience with people who pay to come and see it, as well as the 58 other people on the stage with me. And that <laughs> I, I'd like to bottle. I'd like to bottle that. What a lovely thing. Let's bottle it. Let's bottle it indeed and put it in the time capsule. Yes, <laughs> we need to bottle it. I like that view particularly where actually when the theatre's empty, strangely. Oh, isn't it lovely? Mm. Isn't it lovely? Because you can see, it's almost like the old ghosts. In fact, at the beginning of lockdown, I was doing Nine to Five, the musical at the Savoy. And um, we literally, I'd been doing it a year and a bit anyway, so I was quite sort of broken (laughs) physically (laughs) and emotionally for various reasons. So I was coming to the end. I only had about three weeks to go. And I was a bit on the wind down, but, you know, keeping going. And... We went in on the Monday for um, warm-up, warming up. Throughout the warm-up, people were looking at their phones and saying, Phantom's cancelled, this one's cancelled. Then the producers suddenly arrive in the wings and you think, what's this about? Come on stage and say, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be, we're not doing the show tonight. We don't know what's going on with the situation. And that was the end of the show. And actually, there's a picture of me and Brian Connolly, who was in the show with me, just our backs looking out at the empty auditorium, which was sweet. So the theatre closed. And one of the, um, uh, well, the lady who, who created the video wall at the back of the set, she, a few weeks later, was allowed to go into the five of the Ambassador Theatre Group theatres and photograph the theatres. And she created a book called Standing By to raise money for those freelancers who are not helped at all. Mm. But it's a beautiful book. And she asked me to write the foreword for it. It's a beautiful book because it does look as if the people were just sort of sucked out like some sort of apocalyptic thing Mm -hmm. and the dressing rooms were exactly the same you know someone's false eyelash was in their on their dressing table with the glue on it waiting Mm -hmm. um and one of the things i found most haunting as well was the script that had been set aside was just nibbled all around the edges by the mice it's a very haunting picture Mm -hmm. and um a moment that's captured that hopefully won't happen again for some time of you know when the people left theatres and that there is still a life and I actually talked in my forward about the fact that they used it in 42nd Street the ghost light Mm. gypsy they use it as well this moment that there's a particular light that comes on a stand they just wheel on the stage that stays lit all night and they call it the ghost light and it is like it's for so the ghosts can see where they're going Mm. and there is something magical about being in a theatre when the audience aren't there and there's even the expectation of that life and that noise coming in, echoing round, and also all those people before, mm. especially somewhere like Drury Lane. 
it's like an old oak tree, isn't it? You think, what have you seen? Well, of course, it has seen you standing on that stage. <laughs> I mean, to do it once is extraordinary, but uh, to have done it twice and to have found yourself in the same situation, I'm not surprised that you found it difficult to get through that song. It must have been an extraordinary moment. I'm going to put that into the time capsule, that thing to Thank remind you, you of, of that extraordinary journey that you've made through your life. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, there we are. So we've got one final thing to put in, Bon. <gasps> you see, I dither. I dither so much. I mean, there's silly things I could put in, like chocolate, which I love. <laughs> books. I haven't even talked about any books. And then I, I don't know if I'm allowed this, but then we've talked a lot about technology and uh, having to use it. And I kind of thought I would cheat in a way and see if I could put my phone in. <laughs> because, yeah, okay, this sounds daft, doesn't it? But technology has changed so much, hasn't it? You know? um, and I keep on my phone. And because of technology and people tweeting things or whatever, there have been some wonderful photographs, moments, voice memos, rehearsals with people that I have captured now. Mm-hmm. And... I'd have to put the charger in as well, of course. Um, <laughs> so I thought maybe I could put my phone in because I love to talk, as you can tell. So maybe if I could put my phone in, I could dial something when I open it's my It's your time capsule. You can put what you like in there. <laughs> I mean, really, I was supposed to ask you to put something in there that you'd like to get rid of from your life. <gasps> oh, well, that probably too, actually, my phone as well. Sometimes I want to get rid of it's it. It's a blessing and a curse. Oh, what would I want to get rid of? Well, at the moment, my electricity bill. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most succinct answer I've ever had. There you go. I get rid of all the bills. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. I don't know if that's acceptable, but I'll do that one. Look, you make up the rules. Okay. You do what you want. And, and as long as you have a good time and you're happy with it. And I have had a brilliant time. I'm going to say right. that I have let you entertain me. And all the hip arrays and ballyhoo, they haven't affected you at all. Unfortunately, it is now midnight. Yes. There's not a sound from the pavement. <laughs> carry on, carry on. I can't think of any more quotes. <laughs> There's got to be something better than this. If they could see you now. Indeed. Honestly. We definitely will reach for the gun and all that jazz. Oh, Bonnie, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been an absolute joy. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Bonnie Langford. If you had fun, then please subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you usually get your podcasts, and you'll get each episode as it's released. To find out what we're up to, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just look for at MyTCPod. And you can listen to the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music in full on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton-Stevens. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Bonnie for being my guest. You know, I once auditioned to be in Sweet Charity with Bonnie. I didn't get the part, but um, I'm not bitter. I mean, let's face it. If they could see me now, that little gang of mine. Um, well, I'm sitting on my own singing into a microphone, so... If you've got to this point of the podcast without skipping to the next episode, you can tell your friends, I remember hearing the moment we realised that he'd finally cracked. So, until next time, sausages. Sorry, did I say sausages? I meant aardvark. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 